listening to Awake in Relationship, a podcast about intimacy, community, and culture in a time of great change, with Silas Rose. My name is Silas Rose, and welcome to another episode of Awake in Relationship. At the time of this recording, COP28 or the UN Conference on Climate Change is just wrapping up. While we're still waiting on the final report uh, from over 10 days of uh, intense negotiations among the member states participating, it now seems that the needle really hasn't moved all that far on the climate crisis file. It's really easy right now to feel somewhat cynical or disheartened, especially when petrostates hold so much power at the table. Spending a week and a half haggling about whether we should be uh, phasing out fossil fuels really seems like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. But hey, I'm just a lonely podcaster with very few levers to pull in this regard. The problem is when it comes to the climate crisis or other big existential threats, it's really starting to feel like the adults have left the room. The absence of meaningful change or competent and trusted leadership is innately anxiety-producing, which brings me to the main point of this episode. The news does a more than adequate job of covering the various extreme weather events we've had lately. What doesn't get a lot of our time is our emotional response to these events. According to a recent Lancet study, over half of North American youth experience some form of persistent depression, sadness, or anxiety related to climate change. Like with any of the emotions, there's a tendency to personalize ecological anxiety as if we were the only ones experiencing it. So I feel it's really important to talk about it. In this episode of Work in Relationship, I speak with returning guest, David Siegel, who's a family therapist and also co-founder of Human Nature Counseling, a not-for-profit with a mission to make nature-based therapy more accessible to youth and adults. In this conversation, we talk about some of the unique challenges we face as humans living in the Anthropocene, and adapting to a rapidly changing climate. We also discuss how to recognize some of the physical and mental symptoms of ecological anxiety, and some daily practices drawn from nature-based therapy for regulating our nervous system and staying connected in uncertain times. David Siegel. Welcome back to Awaken Relationship. So good to be here with you, Silas. So we're doing something a little bit different this time. Uh, I usually do my recordings over Zoom, but since we're in the same town, uh, we're doing it at our uh, co-workspace. Uh, you were one actually one of my first uh, recordings back in, um, I think it was October of 2020. And at that time, you were just launching, or 
about to launch your uh, nonprofit society. So perhaps, uh, you know, for people that are maybe new listeners, uh, could you uh, just give us a little bit of an update? Sure. So Katie Rose, co-founder, and myself had been working in the community in the mental health sphere for the last decade or so. And we saw this need for barrier-free mental health supports. The COVID pandemic uh, was just took such a toll on everyone's mental health, uh, as well as obviously physical health and, and just all the change and uncertainty that came with that time. And we're still seeing the, that reverberating in our communities in terms of how it's showing up in people's nervous systems. And we really wanted to be able to offer a service that was different, that really looked at the embeddedness of human beings within our ecological world, and that removed the financial restraints from accessing quality mental health support. So we started the charity in 2019 was when we became a not-for-profit society, and we became a charity in February 2023. Mm. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's a lot of work. (laughs) Yes, a lot of work, and we served last year over 700 people. And, uh, you know, that number just keeps growing. We have a team, an incredible team of about 22 staff, clinicians who are deeply passionate about bringing about a a life-serving world where people can thrive in a planet that's thriving. Mm. Well, this conversation is really quite timely. You know, here in BC, we just kind of went through the biggest uh, wildfire season uh, on record. There's obviously a lot of change happening in the world right now. Are you feeling the heat, David? (laughs) Uh, You know, to be alive in these times, uh, I don't think there's any way to not feel the heat unless you are doing a lot of numbing. I think China Macy calls it psychic numbing. And I think there's also a time and place for that, given just how intense things are. So yeah, most certainly, you know, um, I, I really like the work of Thomas Homer Dixon, who talks about tectonic stressors. And there's just so many right now, whether it's global conflict, Uh, climate change, environmental degradation, the rising gap between rich and poor. Uh, There's just so many, on so many levels, I think that systems are being strained. And we're at these uh, breaking points where, uh, because of positive feedback loops, things can just kind of accelerate at a pace that surprises everyone. Um, So yeah, I think we're all in it together. And that's also where I think hope lies, because uh, human beings, are truly incredible at adapting and when we can work together amazing things can happen in my opinion i really feel like uh, the youth are kind of the canaries in the coal mine in this situation uh, apparently i think it's like 44 percent of teens presumably in america and i'm sure it's not that different here in canada uh experience a, a persistent uh sense of doom and sadness around the state of the world is this something that you're recognizing more more of in your practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on all the different people that come knocking on our door for support. And I, I would say that how it's presenting to us isn't in that language. How it's presenting to us is a meaninglessness, a feeling of lack of worth, self-worth, the amount of times that people are, young people, are talking about their life having no no meaning and that they d- themselves don't feel worthy is, is heartbreaking. And I think about uh, 
how how is it that people come to see themselves as lovable and capable it's in the eyes the caring eyes of their loved ones the adults surrounding them and if the adults are stressed and if the adults are being pulled in a, in a million different directions and they're not able to keep reflecting back that that uh, that joy and that delight when they see their loved ones so yeah most certainly young people are, are struggling and they and it's showing up in, in anxiety in uh, hopelessness and when I think we can create space for them to talk about what's going on uh, this this fear this uh, well we we're talking about ecological anxiety so this anticipation of this terrible outcome which in their minds is I can't see a future mm. in, in with the way things are going so it's quite complex but it's it's definitely there and of course that's not limited to uh, young people it's something that we're all kind of experiencing on some level I think the the term eco anxiety it's not really a kind of an official uh, diagnosis per se but it's being used a lot more uh, by health professionals uh, what are some of the kind of common symptoms, physical, mental, emotional, mm -hmm. that people might be experiencing? Yeah, when I think about ecological anxiety, I, I like to think of it as any type of anxiety, which is a response, a physiological response that the body's having to and the brain's essentially forecasting of some uncertain future that seems uh, intolerable in terms of the, the outcomes that may happen and kind of it feels out of control and so it can also it can be a motivator anxiety can be a motivator to make change it's a response right so our body's saying hey wait a minute this thing might happen I, I'm not sure how it's going to unfold I want to prepare myself I want to get um, ensure I'm safe but then on the other hand it can also be debilitating because it can the brain doesn't um, tell time in the same way that, um, sorry, our amygdala, the part of our brain that kind of processes fear, doesn't tell time in the same way as our frontal cortex. So it's as if these horrible things are happening in the moment, even though we might be sitting in, you know, in this case, in this beautiful co-working space. But if we're really feeling into the, the pain and destruction that could come from runaway climate change, our nervous system doesn't know the difference. And so the symptoms would be very similar to any type of anxiety. It would be racing heart rate, uh, very, you know, a challenge to sleep, challenges with sleep, um, concentration becoming uh, more difficult, and just the sense of, of unease, kind of a tightness. And it's kind of like there's no safe place to be. Mm. So you've been giving some talks uh, recently, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you back on attachment theory as a way of kind of understanding uh, or working with uncertainty. What what is that connection? Mm -hmm. One of my teachers, Sue, Dr. Sue Johnson, has done incredible work in terms of bringing attachment theory to kind of a more public audience. And essentially, she says we are social bonding mammals, like that our best way to navigate uncertainty is in close connections. That's how we're wired, that's how we're designed, and it's because of the fact that when newborns come into this world, they're so vulnerable, and they need the attentiveness of adults around them in terms of their survival. 
And so that attachment system that forms between the parents or the adults surrounding the caregivers surrounding the child uh, goes throughout the life from cradle to grave. It doesn't go away. You know, it transfers to our, anyone that we bond with, any place that we bond with. That same attachment system's going. So what that means is when the places that we are um, connected to, bonded to, the people that we are connected to, bonded to, are in distress, we feel distress. Mm. And when we, she says, suffering is inevitable, but suffering alone, that's what's intolerable. Mm. And so when our nervous system can feel that we've got people around us, and she, uh, John Bowlby was one of the founders of attachment theory. He spoke about the stronger, wiser one. So this, this being that has us, that has our back, that we can count on, that we can fall into their arms and be caught, uh, that when we can collectively create that for ourselves, in, in the sense of a, building a community that we can all fall back into, it, our nervous system can relax. Mm. A big part of the anxiety, at least for me, really, is that it feels like the, you know, the adults have left the room, literally. You know, we're, we are growing adults living in this world, in this society, but our politicians are really, in some sense, kind of slow-walking any kind of meaningful change around the climate crisis. So there is this kind of parallel uh, between you know, early childhood development, our experiences in early childhood and what we're going through now. Uh-huh. Yeah, in terms of not having, uh, not having the confidence that those, the people that, are, that have been elected, in, in this case Canada, to, to govern, are, um, people aren't seeing that they are stepping into the role of a stronger, wiser one. Yeah, so that would create um, that sense of, of urgency that the problem's not being addressed. And, and, you know, I think there's these larger societal structural challenges in terms of how human beings are navigating uh, the painful emotions that come with really looking at what's going on. And I think that one of the best, or one of the ways that people cope with distressing emotions is avoidance and short-term fixes. And we see that as being kind of what perpetuates a lot of addictions is, is there's something intolerable and people are doing the best they can and they, they try to get away from that discomfort. And so the question that comes up to me is how can we collectively start looking at what the problems are, you know, really facing them mm-hmm. and feeling them. And it can be very overwhelming to feel uh, the, the fear, the ecological anxiety, the grief that comes with all the the destruction. Just recently I was talking to a friend and she was talking about our wilderness spaces as being a ghetto for wildlife now. That Mm. human beings, due to our uh, development, has has relegated the the rest of the the biome to to a ghetto, which kind of hit me quite hard in terms of thinking about that, that the other millions of beings are living in kind of substandard conditions for their ability to thrive. It really seems that every generation has some version of the apocalypse kind of imprinted, you know, in their psyche. I'm older than you. I'm, I'm gender X. I think you're probably on the cusp. But you probably remember uh, the Cold War and, you know, fear around nuclear annihilation. <laughs> And that was really kind of uh, transmitted through both the news and um, and also popular media, like movies like the uh, the Day After Tomorrow, or even the Terminator, which uh, you know definitely kind of shaped my worldview. 
How do you think uh, the current uh, mainstream media is covering the climate crisis? What is the impact of that right now? Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm the best person to answer around uh, an analysis of the media. However, I do know that our consumption of media is, needs to be um, really looked at carefully in terms of how it impacts us because the media is just so it's so accessible now and it's so filled with uh, images that evoke um, such visceral responses and that i do think it's important to be informed however i think that in terms of caring for ourselves and, and our ability to navigate these challenging times that ensuring we we tread carefully in terms of our, our consumption of media and also recognizing that there isn't like the media is telling a certain story. And so what are the stories that aren't being told? You know, are there stories of resilience, of hope? Are there stories of um, just some of the other narratives that are being lost in terms of uh, all the different things that are happening in this moment? I appreciate your, your uh, hesitancy around commenting on the state of the media because that itself is kind of controversial, and especially after COVID, that there's a lot of mistrust in uh, legacy media. And a lot of people are kind of going to alternative platforms. And, you know, that's both wonderful but also kind of scary because there's really kind of no vetting uh, the information that's that's shared there. There's no fact-checking. And what I've really noticed as a result there, there's this kind of return of what might be called climate denialism. Joanna Macy has done a lot of work around that. Uh, she's a, you know, obviously an eminent Buddhist author, deep, deep ecology thinker. That's written uh, a number of wonderful books, particularly around uh, the work that reconnects. And she really focuses on the importance of touching into the grief that you mentioned as sort of the first step in the process of getting to acceptance and then to action. Can you talk a bit about that process a little bit more? Yeah, so I had the privilege of working with Joanna Macy back in uh, maybe about a decade ago, and it was incredible. She was a guest here on the Quangan Territory, and she came up, and for it was for about 15 days we spent time looking deeply at her work and the spiral that she moves people through in terms of how do we go from feelings of despair to empowerment because really there is this curve between and a relationship between despair and empowerment and despair can really be thought of as as times of fatigue and then how do we move ourselves through that into back into places of empowerment and action and for her it starts with actually gratitude Mm. it starts with gratitude because to go into the grief is too much without uh, some good footing it's almost the equivalent of looking at the raging river rather than being in it. If you can have some ground to stand on and if you can have the bank, then you can assess the river. And in terms of the grief work that she is a proponent of, and, and many others are, as well as Francis Weller, he speaks about grief as not something to be fixed, but something to be tended to. And that when our hearts can actually uh, be given the space to feel their love for life, their love for this earth, their love for all the beings that we share this planet with. Like that's the other side of the grief. And so to create space 
to honor our grief and honor our pain is actually allowing us to step into our interconnectedness, which is a powerful thing, powerful experience. And it's the complete opposite of when we're psychically numbing, cutting ourselves off, feeling isolated. So it brings me back to that attachment piece around our connectedness, our bondedness, that by creating space where we can hold our grief, following some following <clears throat> a platform of gratitude, it'll transform us. Mm. And so that then becomes the next stage in her spiral around seeing with new eyes. What does it mean now that we know we can collectively hold this pain together and that it changes us and transforms us? And that's where it leads to active hope and going forth. So what's the next step? How are we going to take this energy, this love, these feelings, and put it towards the world that we want to see. So what is active hope, and how is that different from passive? I think Joanna is a realist, and she, she's been doing this work for a long time. It started actually in response to the fears around nuclear proliferation and, and the Cold War, where people were just devastated, obviously, at, at the destruction uh, and the fear of, of further destruction. And so hope uh, can be defined in, in numerous ways. And often people will, f when they're feeling hopeless, they drop into despair. And so in that context, hope is something you have. It's like, I have hope, now I'm feeling motivated, versus I don't have hope, and now I'm falling into despair. However, what Joanna's noticed is that if hope can be seen as a verb, it's something we do, then we, we're less likely to fall into that uh, trap of either having it or not having it. Because we don't know, she says, we don't know what the future has in store for us. Mm. Yes, it could get worse, but it also could get better. The same way that with a lot of these positive feedback loops where things are kind of building, compounding themselves, like the permafrost melting, which releases more uh, global warming gases into the atmosphere, which then heats up the world the same thing can happen in, in the positive way, in a virtuous way, that if we can slow down the permafrost melting, it, more carbon's retained, the earth stays cooler. So there's, she says that there's so much possibility. And so in the face of so much at stake, why not move in the best way we can with active hope? Mm. What's giving you hope right now? feel very fortunate to have this organization that I'm uh, a part of and every day I feel inspired at the work that me and my team are doing. I'm, I'm completely inspired by the youth of today. Uh, Greta Thunberg as just one example. I was reading a book recently of her conversation with the Dalai Lama and they were talking about the climate emergency and it was just so, it was so inspiring to see the two of them talking. As well, um, there's so many examples of Indigenous resurgence. Um, Reuben George, he's from the Sable-Tooth Nation. He just wrote a book called It Stops Here about the Trans Mountain Pipeline ending in his territory, which is uh, just outside of what's known as Vancouver. And his book is beautiful. Around It's around healing. It's around reconnecting to the land. Mm. It's around working on intergenerational trauma and, and how all these 
pain points are connected. That, that um, so many people are doing this beautiful work to bring about a world that's life-sustaining. And so it, it actually, there is a lot of hope for me because I don't have to look far to see uh, things that inspire me. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you for the work that you do, David. And um, people want to learn more about you or human nature counseling. Uh, where can they go? We'd love for you to check us out. Go to our website, humannaturecounseling.ca. And it's uh, we also co-authored a book with Dr. Nevin Harper, Nature-Based Therapy. And yeah, we're just trying to do our small part. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Silas. There's so much good medicine shared in this conversation. If you want to learn more about David's work, head over to humannaturecounseling.ca. I'll also put some links in the show notes at awakenrelationship.com. If you found value in this episode, please consider forwarding it to a friend. I love getting feedback from my audience. If you want to be in touch, you can uh, send me an email through the contact page on the website or reach out to me on Instagram, Substack, or LinkedIn. If you made it this far into the episode, I want to thank you, dear listener, for lending me your ears and tuning in. Till next time, stay connected. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Awake in Relationship. If you liked what you heard, please click subscribe to get the latest show delivered fresh to your device or sign up for our newsletter at awakeinrelationship.com. Sharing is caring. 